to John chapter 8. And praise the Lord, we are finishing John chapter 8. We've been in this passage, this chapter for quite a long time. It's a a lengthy description uh, in John's gospel of Jesus' work and ministry at the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so by, uh, by God's grace today and Lord willing, we will finish um, this chapter this morning unless the Lord Jesus returns and, and uh, we will understand more fully what Jesus has been doing. If, if I could remind you um, very briefly, uh, Jesus is there in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Um, as we've said, week after week, he is uh, preaching and proclaiming. Uh, the gospel. Uh, he uh, stands before the people in uh, really John chapter 7 and 8 and declares um, that he is both the source of living water and the source of gospel light to the nations in these bold and um, God exalting passages. We see that Jesus is literally proclaiming. Uh, a spiritual life that's only found in him. And of course, he's doing that in conjunction with the uh, ceremonies of the Feast of the Tabernacles, the, the parade of the priests that take water from the Pool of Siloam and, and they, they take it to the temple, pouring it on the altar, the, the lighting of lights at night to be reminded of the glory of God in the wilderness that led Israel as a cloud by day and fire by night. Um, he is declaring with absolute certainty and declaration that he alone is God. And of course, with that declaration that he is God in the flesh comes great conflict. It is the truth of the gospel that divides as the light divides the darkness. And so what we saw and what we've continued to see through chapter 8 is Jesus faced conflict first from the religious leaders and now what we will see today, the conclusion of conflict with these people who at one point showed an, an act of external belief or a temporary belief in Jesus. But what we will see um, by the end today that this was clearly uh, surface-level faith. It was not genuine discipleship and f- uh, a following of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we think about this passage today, I want to begin by asking you a question who are your spiritual heroes? Now, if you answer Jesus, you're giving me the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus is my spiritual hero. But I, I would probably, um, I would admit that um, below Jesus, there have been spiritual heroes, spiritual examples, people that I have tried to imitate in my life um, and, and God used these people uh, to influence me toward a, a Christ-likeness. There are men in this church that are some of those men that God has used in my life to spur me on. Um, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's a good philosophy of imitation, I guess you could say where we look at people around us, a lot of times that's older saints, people that have walked through the valley of death and have feared no evil because they have trusted in the strength of the Lord. And those are spiritual heroes. Those are men and women, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that have been good examples for us. And we are thankful that the, the Lord Jesus has provided them in our lives. We look back in the, uh, the scriptures and we see examples like King David. King David having victory over Goliath. We look at men like Elijah having victory over Ahab and the prophets of Baal as we learned about in our uh, story this morning with our young people in Disciple Me. 
We think about Moses' victory over Pharaoh, Peter's boldness at Pentecost, Paul's passion for the gospel to spread across the globe, Timothy's faithfulness to serve in difficult ministry situations. Those are just examples from the scripture, not to mention the countless examples, the, the figureheads of evangelical uh, Christianity throughout the history that, that we have uh, learned from and gained wisdom from, that have pointed us back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Great preachers of the, of the faith like Spurgeon and Whitfield and Edwards and Calvin and Luther, MacArthur, Piper, Sproul, and so on and so on. Those influential missionaries such as Lottie Moon and Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor and Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and so on and so forth. And this, of course, doesn't even begin to list the evangelical leaders in the last 50 to 100 years that continually influence as they live and breathe. I could go on and on, but the point is, is that God has blessed us with spiritual heroes But there's a problem that needs to be addressed. And the problem is, is that we oftentimes take our spiritual heroes and we deify them and we worship them. Because they have meant so much to us, we oftentimes would rather learn from them before we would rather learn from Jesus. We oftentimes want to go to a book that maybe they've written instead of necessarily going to the passage that is glorifying and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. See, these men and women are fallible human beings. And as we are tempted to idolize and worship these people, we are oftentimes severely disappointed when they fail us. The Southern Baptist Convention is going through a very difficult time as a convention. If you don't know, many leaders in the last six months have come forward, prominent leaders of of our Southern Baptist Convention that we are affiliated with that have come forward and for myriads of different reasons confessing sin, losing their uh, leadership responsibilities because they have fallen in some way or another, into sin as leaders. So as I was looking at this passage this morning, I was reminded to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. That he is our only sufficient and preeminent spiritual hero. If you look to just mere men and you lift them up and you place them in high places, they will fail you at times. And if your identity is found in their teaching and your identity is found in their wisdom and then they fail you, your identity will be grasping for something new because it will come crumbling down. But when your identity is in Christ alone... Christ will never fail you. Christ has never sinned, nor will he ever sin. The rock is steady and it's sure. Abraham was a spiritual hero to the Jewish people. Not only were they culturally and biologically affixed to Abraham... But he was, as they call him, Father Abraham, had many sons, right? And through the the lineage of Abraham and the promises of God, what we're going to see in our story this morning is, is that Abraham, for the Jews, had become their means of salvation. They were declaring to Jesus that because they were Abraham's children, they had a spiritual identity with the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to correct their improper understanding of Abraham. He's going to correct their improper worship 
and he's going to redirect it to himself with an inappropriate reaction. See, the idea this morning and the purpose and the direction we're going is to basically see that Christ is preeminent over these lesser spiritual heroes that we may have in our lives. And we need to keep that into perspective. So let me give you four reasons why. Four reasons why Christ is preeminent over our lesser spiritual heroes. Sounds pretty simplistic until we maybe realize and evaluate in our lives how we at times are guilty of idolizing humanity. Number one. All glory from the Father belongs to and validates the Son. Now you'll remember Jesus is giving them reasons why he is the one that should be worshipped. He is the reason, uh, he was the source of spiritual life. He is the light of the world. And in the, in the context of John chapter 8, these particular Jews have shown a, an external belief in Jesus, and so he is kind of addressing this external belief to show them that their belief is not genuine. And, and like last week, I kind of summed this up for you. He's kind of given us three things. Number one, and they all are, are interconnected, but number one, he reminds them that we're all slaves to sin. And this is important for them to understand because as they understand their slavery to sin, they understand that the freedom of that slavery comes through Christ. Number two, he tells them that they are children of the devil. Again, they have to understand that their actions are not reflective of people who are truly believing in in God's Son who was sent into the world. Their actions are reflective of people who are trying to oppose God's Son, God's messenger, God's redeemer. And instead, they are acting like children belonging to Satan and his demons. So they're... Enslaved to sin, their works are reflective of demonic activity. And lastly, and most importantly, they are finding their identity in something other than Jesus. Now, if you're not jiving with me this morning, maybe because you didn't have a spiritual mentor... Maybe you didn't have that person in your life that you really looked to as the kind of the, the, the material human rock of your faith in Christ. They guided you, they directed you, they pointed you to the scriptures. Then just reflect in your own mind of how other things take our identity away from Christ. Meaning, we oftentimes evaluate our worthiness by the way we parent or by the success of our job. If I'm a good parent or if I'm a good employee, if I have success in my business or I have success in parenting, then I feel a value and a worth in the world. If my children are all walking in the truth, then that makes me as a human being feel as if I've done a good job spiritually raising them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But the danger in that is that that our our identity is found in those things, those earthly things that we don't have full control of instead of in Christ. So just like we cannot assure that our spiritual mentors will consistently walk with Christ and not fail, in the same way we cannot assure that our children will believe or that we will always be successful in ministry, those things are fleeting, they are temporal, they will fail. But when our identity is in Jesus Christ, he will never fail us. Because he is Lord and King over all. 
And the one way that we see that this morning in our passage is that Jesus reminds us that all glory has been given to him by the Father. It belongs to him and it validates him as the Son of God and not just a mere man. Look in verse 48. Let's read this down through the end of the chapter. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make, yourselves out, make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is, is, is nothing. But it is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, Are Are you not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus' first point to them is merely to say, don't look at what I am saying, look at what the Father has done through me. The evidence that I am bringing forth is merely an evidence that is external of myself. He says, I'm not trying to glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is the Father who glorifies me. It is the Father who is honoring me. They are calling Jesus a Samaritan and a demon. They are dishonoring the very one that God has sent on this earth, who is God in the flesh. They are treating him just as the Old Testament prophets were treated before Jesus ever came. Now, why would they call Jesus a Samaritan? And claim that he has a demon. Well, to call Jesus a Samaritan was just an offensive insult to him. For one Jew to question the Jewish heritage of another Jew, in their minds, was demonic. It would be something that an insane person would do. And insanity to a Jewish person was linked back to demon possession. And we see, of course, evidence of that. But to say that Jesus is a Samaritan is merely uh, like a Bolton High School graduate insulting you by saying you went to Bartlett. Oh, you went to Bartlett, I understand what it's like. Or if you're, you know, not as well-to-do, you may say, oh, were you born in Frazier? You guys understand, right? Sorry, sorry, my out-of-town members here. It's just an attack on his his character, on his person, to call him a Samaritan and claim that he has a demon. And Jesus does not respond. He, He does not try to justify himself. He merely denies truthfully that he doesn't have a demon and instead focuses on their actions Compared to his. He says, I honor the Father, you dishonor me. 
I'm not trying to, to justify myself or seek my own glory. He says, just merely observe the fact that the Father is the one. He is the one who is glorifying me. And he is the true judge. The one who rightly and truthfully judges who should receive glory. So the truth is, is that Jesus is merely giving evidence for us that he is the Son of God, that he is the one who deserves the glory. Not a glory reserved for the Old Testament saints. Not a glory reserved for the New Testament saints. But a glory reserved for Christ alone. And of course, like humanity's great temptation, these Jews had propped up Abraham as if he deserved honor, and that they deserved honor because they were related to Abraham, and somehow that validated them as belonging to the kingdom just by a spirit or a physical heritage. Jesus lays waste to any thought and says, No. Just like he says in John chapter 3, you must be spiritually born new. You must have a spiritual birth, believing in Christ alone. So my children, they have no spiritual heritage in Christ Jesus because they belong to a family where their dad is a pastor and he teaches them God's word. They have to repent on their own. They have to believe in Christ on their own. Their faith has to be theirs and not mine. There's no spiritual heritage that they are born into as pelegras. And just to be clear, Abraham proved to us that he didn't deserve honor and glory. Do you not remember as the Jews prop up Abraham? Can we not be reminded of Genesis chapter 16? Where Abraham and Sarah, or or Abram and Sarah at that time, are, are growing impatient for God's promise to come to fruition? God had promised them that he would be the father of, of, of many nations, of, 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 of an innumerable amount of people. And as their age is, is increasing, their patience is waning. And so what does Sarah do? She devises a plan for Abram to marry and have a child with her servant, her woman servant. So, so Abram does. He, he has a child with her named Ishmael. And then what does Sarah do? She blames God. God has prevented me from bearing a child. Abram listens to the voice of his wife instead of lead his family the way that it was instructed for him to lead. This is exactly reflective of the leadership of Eve over Adam in the garden when there was the fall of man. So Abram has this child. He even asks God at one point to allow Ishmael to be the God of promise. Sarah responds in jealousy to this child being born and hatred toward Tagar. And she convinces Abram to cast them out of their home. So now Abram has listened to the voice of his wife instead of being a spiritual leader. He's impatiently gone ahead of God instead of waiting on the promises of God. He's listened to his wife again and cast out his child and his wife, Hagar, out into the wilderness instead of being their provider and their protector. None of these things are reflective of someone who was obedient to what God had commanded him to do. That's dishonoring God and his commands. Reminding us that our spiritual heroes on this earth will fail us. But Christ was perfect in every way. Christ was perfect in temptations to sin. He was tempted as we are, and yet without sin. 
And so the glory and the honor that comes from the Father belongs to the one who is sitting on his right hand. That is not David. That is not Abraham. That is not Moses or Elijah or, or, or any that have preceded. That is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who was crucified on our behalf. So Jesus' point to these men are particularly who is the Father glorifying? He is glorifying me, not Abraham. Number two, Jesus says in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Jesus' point is is that all the words of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, lead to eternal life. Jesus is again making a distinction. He's making a distinction that all the words of all the scriptures, point to him, and thus he is the source of eternal life. If anyone, he says, keeps my word, he will never taste death. means he will live for eternity, forever. His, his, his point is that a, a person who is truly submitted to God, who is in a relationship with God, will keep the word of God, and that his words point to eternal life. All of God's word, all of his revealed word, starting in Genesis chapter 1, tell a story of God's redeeming work through his son, by which he promises and accomplishes the work as the substitute sacrifice for sinners on the cross and the resurrection from the grave that cancels the debt of sin and ushers in new life in Christ. That reconciling work of the eternal Son of God was planned before the foundation of the world. It was foretold in Genesis chapter 3, foreshadowed in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samson, Rahab, Samuel, the judges, the kings of Israel, anticipated by the major and the minor prophets, and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Folks, all of Scripture points to Jesus as the true source of eternal life. The Father has attested of it, And this word that we have points to him. And Jesus' point is, you reject this word. You reject the words, you don't have eternal life. As you keep the word, you demonstrate that you do have eternal life. So merely Jesus is condemning these Jews for not believing in him as the true son of God. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that obedience to God's word earns spiritual merit badges that attain for us salvation. If we take that sentence, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, if we take it by itself if it's printed on those little daily um, inspirational quotes that we keep in our bathroom as we leave the, 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 uh, the bathroom for the day, and we're like, oh, here's, today is you know, June 2nd, and, and let me read my inspirational quote. If we take this out of context, then we sound a lot like the Muslims and the Hindus. Oh, well, if I just, if I just obey God's word, then I will earn a way to salvation. He's not teaching that. He's teaching that as John oftentimes does, the condition, if anyone keeps my word, is reflective of someone who already has believed. And so as someone who has already believed and is keeping the word, is, it, it is adhering or preserving or obeying the word, 
in their daily lives, they are someone who will never see death. Jesus is also not teaching that a person never dies, although it is possible we could all be sitting here right now and the Lord Jesus returns and we will never taste death, right? Jesus could come from heaven and as he returns, he will ascend and we will go to meet him in the air and he will return and create a, a new heaven and a new earth. And those of us that are on the earth will, will not experience death. But he's not making that as the standard because the standard is our bodies will die. But that we will spiritually live beyond our physical death when we believe and trust in him as the eternal and only son of God. Their confusion is this. Well, Abraham died. Are you insane? And what's interesting to me is that as Jesus is teaching these things to them, these spiritual truths, and he's saying that someone who keeps my word will never see death, and then they are re rebuttaling with, well, what about Abraham? He kept the word, and he died. Don't you think that they should understand the concept of resurrection? I mean, this is... This is what Jesus is talking about, spiritual resurrection. And guess what? Abraham understood that. Abraham understood the concept of resurrection thousands of years before these Jews could not understand it. How did that happen? Was it because he belonged to God? Remember with me, as Abraham is carrying his son or walking with his son up the mountain to sacrifice his son, he looks over to his son and his son says, well, what are we going to sacrifice? And he says, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. Now, just in that context, we don't necessarily know what's going on with, Ab with Abraham. We, we rather know that, that he believes in a substitutionary sacrifice or he believes that that God is going to perform a miracle. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that even if Isaac would have been slain on the altar, that he would be able to bring him back, rise him from the dead. So Abraham understood resurrection. He understood that resurrection was possible by the same God who allowed an elderly couple to bear a child. And that through his lineage, he would be able to have children. And so the warning here this morning, church, is to find our greatest comfort and our greatest confidence in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and not just mere men. See, I'm challenged by this because if you think about the history of the Jews, the history of the Jews throughout their life up until the time of Christ was that their own opinions about the Word of God became more important than God's Word itself. Their traditions superseded the what the Word of God said. And so we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we're not spending more time listening to other men outside of listening to God's Word and what the Spirit of God tells us in it. Now, it sounds like I'm talking you out of listening to preaching. God has given us preachers, and preachers preach the Word of God. But the danger for many believers today, it is that, the, that is the only experience that they have in God's Word each week. Well, I'm going to 
go to church and I'm going to listen to the preacher and, and, uh, and then I'll come back next Sunday and listen to the preacher. And so the preacher better give me three sermons on Sunday because I'm going to need a lot of things to hold me over into the next Sunday. But you know what the, the danger in that is? There's a lot of dangers. Number one is that it doesn't reflect a true relationship with Christ. A true relationship with Christ is fed by the Word. It sees the Word of God as a a source of life, as living water that nourishes the soul daily, as the body needs food daily. And even I am am oftentimes caught up in the popularity of, of certain writers and certain authors and we have to be careful that we're, we're, not, more con, we're, we're, we're not more interested in, in those books and those things when we should be most interested in the Word of God. I've heard people say before, well, the Word of God is hard to understand and, and those books help me understand it. Well, that's true. Commentaries are helpful resources. But brothers and sisters, if you're getting up in the morning and you're not opening your Bible and you're just opening a commentary, you're not allowing the Spirit of God to work and move in your life. Open God's Word. If if you've never been taught how to study the Bible, open God's Word because it's the Word of God. Not Not necessarily the commentary on the Word of God that is your source of life. So don't misunderstand me. I use commentaries to help me study. What I don't do, matter of fact, commentaries are the last step in my preparation because I want to go to God's Word and I want to see the truth that's found in the verses, in the Scripture as a whole. I want to understand the point that's trying to be made. And then I go to the commentaries, the study Bibles. So be students of the Word of God as the source of life. Number three, all the people of God should rejoice in the Son above all. The Jews ask Abraham, or they ask Jesus the best question that any of us could ask, and they didn't even realize it. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Of course, they were expecting a rhetorical no when the answer was yes. I am greater than your father Abraham. But no, I don't have to make myself out to be greater than him. In other words, who are you promoting yourself to be is what they're asking. He's like, I'm not promoting myself at all. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. As I said before, Jesus' point is, the Father promotes me. The Father glorifies me. The Father has revealed to you that I am the true Son of God. So believe it or not. Believe it or not. But then he says in verse 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now there's a lot of debate and a lot of speculation about this verse. How did Abraham see Jesus' day? Some say, well, he saw it from heaven. He saw the resurrection. He saw the death of Christ. He saw the glory, the ascension. He was able to enjoy, kind of as a spectator, the things that he believed by faith. Others speculate that it was there on the mountain with his son Isaac. That as... He was, he encountered this substitute ram in the bush. 
that it was there that he was given insight into the future. An insight that allowed him to see the Messiah coming and the fulfillment and what that ram in the bush represented for the future. And there are other ideas that are less popular. But the truth is, is we don't know exactly the answer of how did Abraham know. We don't. We do know that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God and he's speaking truth always from his lips. And so all we know is that this verse tells us that Abraham knew and he rejoiced in the day of Jesus. Whether that was looking forward to that day that the Messiah would come or looking down upon that day as it was coming, the point is is that the rejoicing is always in the Son above all things. Let's not get caught up in how Abraham saw it. Let's get caught up in why he did it. Why did he rejoice? Because he belonged to God. Because he, by faith, had accounted to him righteousness. A righteousness that he didn't deserve. A righteousness that was attained for him by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there was a sense of rejoicing. A sense of of gladness. Abraham was not into self-promotion. His desire was not to seek the glory of God above all things. His rejoicing and his gladness was that he knew that he was impatient when Ishmael was born. He knew that he did not submit to the truth and the wisdom of God at all times, but that the Messiah would come and he would live a perfect life and he would provide the righteousness needed for us to be freed from our sin, reconciled to our God, and live eternally in heaven. And so our way of life and our way of thinking as Christians is that we are transformed by the Spirit of God Before Christ, we are people who want to rejoice in ourselves and others. We must not lie to ourselves in thinking that we don't idolize other people. We do. And the danger is that we are like the Nebuchadnezzars of our day, we want to sit back and idolize ourselves and reflect upon all that we have accomplished. We want to sit back at the end of our lives and say, look at all these great earthly treasures that sit in my investment account or sit in my three-car garage or sit at the family reunion dinner table. All these things that I've accomplished... The unregenerate heart looks back and sees the treasure troves and finds comfort that our life was well spent on this earth. But a transformed person is so radically changed that those treasures melt away. Our long-term planning is completely erased and redone to leverage our life for the glory of Jesus. Not for personal treasures, but for personal time spent serving and glorifying our Savior. We want to serve Him because Christ died radically to save us from the pit of despair and raised us up to share in His glory. So Abraham rejoiced as we rejoice in the Lord because there is fullness of joy in His presence. So Abraham rejoiced. He turned from self-promotion Reminded me of Acts chapter 14 when Paul and Barnabas go into Lystra 
and Paul performs miracles. And what happens? The human nature of people began to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods from heaven. And what do they do? They reject the worship. He says, why? Paul says, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So how in your life are you seeking to give Jesus Christ the supreme glory due to his name? What accomplishments do you have that the Lord Jesus Christ did not give you? What spiritual victories can we take credit for? What power do we have to defeat the power of sin and death? Nothing is in us, and only can that power and that provision be found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And so we worship him, and we praise him as the great priest, as the great great prophet of God, and as the great king who rules and reigns. And lastly, in the most offensive statement that Jesus makes, he reminds them that all of God's word points to his deity and his eternality as the Son of God. This is where Jesus, as I call it, drops the mic on their misconceptions and their misunderstandings and their unregenerate hearts. And he basically says, look, I know where your heart is. I know where your allegiances are. You are not believing in me. You are believing in your spiritual heritage. So let me just say it bluntly and clearly. That's where the truly, truly comes in. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That is a clear ego, I, me declaration once again by the Lord Jesus Christ that he is the God represented in the Old Testament. He is God in the flesh there on the earth. He is greater than every prophet and priest and earthly king that lived before him and that will live after him. It is the addendum to the seven I am statements of John. Jesus gives us really more than one. Stating that before Abraham was this man that you are claiming to give you spiritual freedom. Because you are related biologically to him. I came and existed before him. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. That I am statement being a declaration that he is God standing in their midst. And of course, you would think that a proper response of someone claiming to be God, with all the evidence undergirding that claim with the validation of the Father, with the fulfillment of the prophecies pointing to Christ, with the demonstration of His power, with miracles, all these things, with His authority in which He spoke truth. You think that they would respond in worship, but instead they picked up rocks to stone Him. Leviticus 24:16 Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. These Jews were merely fulfilling what Jesus said earlier when he said to you, "Why are you doing 
Why aren't you doing the works Abraham did? You seek to kill me. And now they pick up stones to fulfill that. Thus giving us a demonstration of their heart. That their allegiances were to Abraham and not to Christ, the eternal son of God. They were not uh, able to understand and see and thus believe in the Lord Jesus. And I think it's a testimony to the fallenness of humanity. As we talked about a few weeks ago, it's a testimony to see in our lives people who will demonstrate a temporary faith in Jesus, but when someone offends us or the gospel offends us, how do we respond? When we respond in picking up rocks to throw at the truth of the scriptures or at the, 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 the uh, focal point of the scriptures, the Lord Jesus Christ, when we are willing to put that person to death instead of worship the, the eternal Son of God, we are only giving evidence of our lostness and our unregenerate heart. But for those of us who believe we worship and praise this Jesus. The one who is the living water for our souls today. The one who is our source of satisfaction and our joy. He is the one who is our protector and our provider like the fire by night. Guiding and leading us through a strange and and, and arid land. A dry spiritual place where he is the oasis for our souls. And I pray that this would lead us to recognize those things, those, those handfuls of sand that we're willing to shove in our mouths because we think that it is the spiritual nourishment that we need when we really only need Christ and His Word. That we would turn away and we would see the insanity of finding satisfaction in anything else but Jesus. And so we praise him and we worship him as our Lord. Would you pray with me?